Whether you think the U.S. defense budget is too big or too small, one thing is for sure, the planned rise in spending doesn't keep up with inflation. My next guest says there are ways to trim or reallocate those 800-odd billion dollars to get more capability. Heritage Foundation senior policy analyst Wilson Beaver joins me now with more. Mr. Beaver, good to have you with us. Good morning. Happy to be here. And you have written that because it can't keep up with inflation and there is political disagreement over how large it should be, somehow the two sides, roughly, there's probably 50 sides, but the two basic sides have to come together and find ways to help it keep up with inflation in terms of power that can be put on the front if needed, correct? Absolutely. For the next two fiscal years, at least, top line increases are likely to be pretty modest. So if we want a military that's increasing in capability, buying more ships, buying more planes, munitions, all the sort of stuff that a military actually uses, what we need to be cutting is non-defense spending that's currently hidden inside the DOD budget, stuff that does not increase military capacity, but just uh, serves a variety of other purposes that are secondary. Yes, and you cite in particular research and development. The military says and the Pentagon leadership says that, well, the only way we're going to get to that next strategic offset, is their word, is with R&D that we spent similar to the 70s and 80s and developed all these technologies that are now wearing out in terms of their ability to give an advantage. So now AI is a lot of spending and I guess maybe new ways of stealth and so forth. There's got a lot of things going on. They need that, though, don't they? Right. But the problem is that they've been saying that for so long that RDT&E, uh, research and development, has almost caught up with procurement. Can you imagine if Ford was spending as much on research and development as they were on building cars? It doesn't make any sense. It is important. There should be money spent on it, but it could absolutely go down and be reallocated to buying ships and planes. And at a certain point, you have to build in the generation you're in. You can't always be uh, cutting programs halfway through and then working on the next thing. Yeah, they say, what is it? Procurement is deterrence in some ways, I guess, was kind of the philosophy behind that. But then you get into the issue of the new generation of platforms are also really, really expensive and take a long time. I mean, a carrier is almost 15 or 20 years from when you lay the keel to when it can actually be right. operationally deployed. And we know the cost of the submarines and the new fighters that 20 years in still really don't quite work. And so they've got to do something on that front, too. Fair to say? Fair to say. There's an old adage that you should really only add one or two major tech upgrades to a new program. The Ford had at least six major tech upgrades, and it spent the past year or two trying to iron them all out. I do think they're making progress. And by the time the next two carriers are launched, I think a lot of those problems will be ironed out. But like you said, it takes a while. And putting all that stuff in up front can cause problems. You know, and right now there is the threat of a federal shutdown, and so lots of budget arguments going. And I wanted to ask you, while we have you, too, in your experience looking at the defense budget, federal lapses in appropriations, how does that affect DOD? I mean, often the brass are saying that when they have a continuing resolution, that in many ways cripples their progress that they're trying to get to from year to year. What about a shutdown? For sure. It does cause problems. The biggest one is that it sends mixed messages to the people that are building stuff and buying stuff for the DOD. If they're not sure when their next paycheck's coming in, then it can be hard for them to make long-term plans, building missiles or building ships. But we are happy that all the negotiated budgets do leave defense alone, at least, and cut elsewhere. Because we think that these are priorities for the United States, that the security of the United States is best served by a 
capable military. The uh, national defense strategy says that a pacing challenge from China is its number one priority. And if that challenge is going to be met, it's going to require ships and munitions and all of that. We're speaking with Wilson Beaver. He's an Army veteran and senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Again, getting back to what you mentioned as a major discretionary item that could be reallocated, and that is research and development. But what else in there is really left to reallocate because of the high fixed costs that the Defense Department has? I keep hearkening back in these types of interviews to what Secretary Bob Gates said years ago, that the costs of personnel, particularly health care costs, both current and long-term for the volunteer force, he said they're eating us alive. And as you increase force structure, which right now there's no real momentum in Congress to do that, but even as you do, those long-term fixed costs go up. And how do you get around that without some fundamental increase in the budget in real terms? So personnel costs, it's true, they're high. But I've always thought that the well-being of the troops should be the absolute last place to look for savings, especially when there are so many other inefficiencies to be found within the DOD budget. One of them would be base closings, BRAC, but it's politically contentious because there's always at least one uh, congressman that wants to defend that base. The Pentagon asks for it repeatedly, but actually at this point they've stopped asking because it is so politically contentious within Congress. There has to be some wider recognition that If the military says a base isn't needed anymore, then you should at least consider closing it. And you also find that within the weapon systems they are planning to procure, that could be redone in a way that puts more tooth in the direction of what they say is their pacing challenge, which is China, and what it could do in Taiwan? For sure. All defense procurement should be informed by strategy. We shouldn't be buying stuff that doesn't match the strategic intent of the Department of Defense as directed by the president and the Congress. And if the Indo-Pacific is where we are supposing that most future military operations will take place, then that's going to be a lot more funding for the Navy and Air Force and a lot more money spent on long-range munitions and ships and a lot less on the stuff that we've been using in Iraq and Afghanistan for the past 20 years. Yeah, somehow the Army always seems to take it on the chin when these these force projection ideas... Which I hate because I was in the Army. I I hate to say it. But if that's the strategy, then uh, the Navy and the Air Force uh, definitely need more funding. And within procurement itself, there is a lot of inefficiency. And the way programs just seem to get ever more complex and costly and further in the future, the F-you-know-what is always cited (laughs) as the prime example of that. But it's not alone in that type of uh, dynamic. It's not alone. And as F-35 purchases increase costs will decrease over time. One of the best ways to decrease costs is with block buys. Like you were saying earlier, appropriations year over year sends mixed messages to industry and makes it very hard for them to plan long term, which drives up costs. One pretty helpful thing in the NDAA being discussed this year is block buys of munitions. All these missiles needed for the Pacific Ocean are being bought years out instead of just bought for this year. Uh, And that's going to drive prices down and it's going to send a long-term message to industry that the DOD is going to keep buying this stuff. And you make a statement to finish up here that basically the hawks and the doves, as they used to be called many years ago in the Scoop Jackson days, somehow have to find common ground. And what's your handicap on that ever happening? (laughs) Uh, I I wouldn't bet too hard on any broad cooperation in Congress, but I do think that there is potential for fiscal hawks and defense hawks to team up 
if defense hawks want a stronger military, they want it focused on the biggest challenge, which is the Indo-Pacific. And the fiscal hawks want the public to save money. They want taxpayers' dollars to be well spent. And there are savings to be found in DOD. We've actually identified a lot of other ones in a previous report. It's like 40 pages long, full of recommendations, all sorts of budget cuts that can then be put into more worthwhile endeavors so the public's money is being well spent. Wilson Beaver is an Army veteran and senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to his findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways. So that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, And I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. 
And your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, I certainly had some skills. I I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. 
And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision it's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy 
for them. You know, they see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. Is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.